Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 30th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Look, we could talk about January 6th. We could talk about the war in Ukraine. We could talk about the surge in uh, coronavirus illness. And maybe we will. But clearly, the most important thing on the horizon is that tomorrow, July 1st, the final two episodes of Stranger Things are coming on Netflix. I, we can take everything very seriously, but I think we need to acknowledge that I believe all four of us, uh, there are two episodes, they're like two and a half hours long each. This is going to take up a considerable amount of time on our weekend. Does anyone wish to dispute this fact? No, although I, I will say I have a, of a kid at sleepaway camp already with who's not who's going to have to wait to see it because he doesn't have any way to see it. And he's already, you know, sort of uh, signaled that I'm not to there should be no spoilers coming from home. Oh, I got that. Them. I got that, too. I got <laughs> I got kids at sleepaway camp. I got that, too. Also, uh, but uh, Noah, Noah and Abe, are you I, uh, I might I might dispute it slightly. I, I will watch it eventually. But because I think the, the most recent season of which this is the close. Um, has fallen off in quality so significantly, and ha- it just hasn't held my attention in the same way that 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 the first three seasons did. Um, I made I'm not rushing to finish it all this weekend, so it, it may it may stretch this out over the course of a okay. week. Noah, I'm sure we'll finish it, but I didn't know it was two episodes. <laughs> I mean, but at it's least they're two long. Super-sized episodes. Yeah, I think this the final episode is two and a half hours long. So there's like two movies. two movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you, um, this better be the end of the whole thing. Um, but I, 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 you follow this closer than I do. There's some industry buzz over this model and whether it'll be successful. And if it isn't successful, like the whole fate of Netflix hangs in the balance. I don't understand any of it, but that's something that came. There's a lot of whole fate of, the, of, of Netflix hangs in the balance because Netflix stock is down, you know, 80 percent. And all Netflix is is a stock play. The entire way that Netflix's business has been structured has been making itself as attractive as possible to Wall Street so that its stock price would go up and up and up and up. And now that that model is broken, because Netflix, like so much of the market, as we've now seen, market is down 30%. um, Netflix can no longer rely on um, investors buying their um, pie-in-the-sky nonsense about seizing market share and then at some indeterminate point wildly spinning around and becoming insanely profitable, they are now going to be in the position of having to um, follow the pre- the precept that you spend $25 and then you make $30 and then you make a $5 profit or a 20% profit and you have done fantastically well as opposed to you make an enormous amount of money, you make tens of billions of dollars but you spend 20 of twenties of billions of dollars and that's good that 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 model has now been broken by reality by the rise of very serious rivals by the fact that we are heading into a recession and people's spending habits may 
decline. Anyway, that's the Netflix model. That's so Netflix is in a position where every single move it makes now, once every single move it made was good by definition and everybody panicked and had to follow them. And now it's like every decision they're making is potentially catastrophic and will destroy them. I want to say one thing about stranger things, even though it's a total nostalgia fest, we're now in 1986, it started in 1982 the first season, I think like that. So it's 96. This is the most neocon show in the history of television. Who are the villains on this show? The villains on the show are, are obviously uh, creatures from this um, alternate universe just resides right below ours that come and they eat people and they do terrible things. But look, they're just going along that's who they are and that's what they do. And so we're in conflict with them. The villains on the show are the Ruskies. I mean, they call them commies. And now in this season, we're actually spending time in Russia, in Siberia, at a prison camp. And you know what? It's terrible. It's a terrible, horrible, monstrous place. But John, uh, you dismissed the, the creatures of the upside down too readily because they're evil they represent evil i mean they're demons right so in that sense right there's also a neocon sort of echo there's this this moral there's evil that has to be faced down right more important though is the fact that the ruskies or the commies as they are alternately called on this show believe that they can harness the evil we actually have in the most implausible plot development of the show, not that you call a show like this plausible, uh, that they've somehow corralled, you know, sort of like the Minotaur, they've kind of corralled one of these demons in a in a sealed chamber, and then they let it out to kill people and eat them. And then somehow it doesn't kill the Ruski commanders and soldiers, and they come somehow get him back into the chamber and lock him up after he's eaten people. So there's like a kind of, uh, you know, gladiatorial aspect to this that uh, our, that our heroes actually managed to uh, outwit in some fashion. But, um, but this is how bad the rush, the Ruskies are. They think they can take evil and harness it and use it to win the cold war. The Duffer brothers who make this show, I think, are like 35 years old. And I think that we should give them a Nobel Prize because they are reminding people just at the right time, by the way, because maybe we can transition to to Ukraine and Russians, just reminding people of what the world was like, what we were facing, and why we don't want to go back there. Maybe. (laughs) But I will say that over the course of the last 20 years, it has the Russians have been the easiest enemy for you to use in popular culture. This is something that you're, you're only attuned to if you, for example, you played video games in the early 2000s when the focus of American foreign policy was on uh, Islamic radicalism and jihad, and the easiest enemy was the Russians because you couldn't actually do Islamic radicalism and jihad, that was too sensitive a topic. So you could just go back in time and make the Russians the bad guy. And so the Russians have been our collective bad guy for the last 20 years because it was the easier choice to make. Now, communists, I grant you, there's some ideological 
conflict there in in you know pop culture but it's not a grand departure from what pop culture has been doing for the last 20 years uh, i'll dispute that a little bit i don't think it's the it was it's been the easiest enemy to to cast um i think beginning with the post 9-11 world and, and the era you're talking about um the safest most politically correct enemy to portray was the u.s government was ah. was 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 our, our right, evil sure. the, yeah, the pentagon oh, all the everyone scheming and double crossing and, and okay. lying. so here's what whatever is the so whatever's the softest target is the easiest to make the bad guy in your cult cultural product okay so here's what's interesting about stranger things so when it first started and became its cultural phenomenon uh you know at the uh, five or six years ago or whenever it was that it started in its original season um, what happened was we saw this girl escape from a government facility in this small town in Indiana where she was being held. Her head had been shaved, you know, sort of very explicit, weird, you know, analogies, kind of irresponsible and tasteless analogies to concentration camp victims. She had escaped and somehow her escape coincided with or had some role in or something like that with the opening of this portal where the de demonic world enters the real world so you could say that the show is anti-american because it was about how the evil government was you know trying to generate weapons in the form of children very much a stephen king of which this is a of which this is a uh you know an homage and a tribute to it's very much like a, a specific stephen king novel firestarter however they didn't want to stay there. And they first, first of all, they A, they introduced the Russians out of nowhere. And B, the evil government experiment gets taken over by a really nice guy played by Paul Reiser, who was a good guy, whereas the guy who was running it before was a bad guy, played by Matthew Modine. And, and now the good guy is coming to try to fix things. And on this season, we learn that this that the generation generating the uh kids who are supposed to be used as weapons was not in and of itself the work of evil government scientists that there's an evil kid who emerges like any evil kid with sort of evil powers who ends up getting arrested and taken into a facility because he's killed his own family and done monstrous, horrible things and somehow is subdued by the U.S. government in a, in a good way. So, again, possible Nobel Prize for the Duffer Brothers and Sean Levy, the director, producer who uh, shepherded to the, to the screen. Netflix should win a, you know, a Profiles and Courage Award from the Washington Free Beacon. I just think... We have to we have to recognize when there are cultural products that that um, confirm our priors, we should make note of that and 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 thank Hollywood for its um, for its service uh, since we attack it so much uh, for its service. Though I agree with Abe, this is this is a rough season. It's not fun. It's not. It's hard to watch. It's very hard horror. Last year was this kind of hilarious. Most of it was set around a mall. It turned out that the that the that the Soviets had secretly interesting analogy to the Chinese, by the way, 
Soviets had secretly come into Middle America and built this mall because they wanted access to the ground under this town in Indiana so that they could do experiments with the with the with the demons. And uh, that's like Alibaba or TikTok or something like the the ch- Chinese power coming in and, you know, trying to control America for its own ends. But that, that's, that's where it went off the rails because the mall, the mall shots to the monster shot ratio in the last season was perfect. And those of us who were denied the opportunity to be slacker layabouts at the mall when we were teenagers in the 80s. I mean, I kind of watch it just in, in awe because it's everything I missed as a kid, even though all my friends were going there, that that actually had more realistic kind of uh, cultural feeling to it. And, and it's so um, monster gore heavy this season that I, yeah. that I hope they return a little bit more to the kind of eighties milieu in the last yeah. two episodes. That mall set was like one of the great, Brilliant. great recreations of all time. Yes. And it was just perfect. And the anyway. kids at the mall with the mall jobs. I mean, all of yeah. it was kind of spot on. Yeah. Uh, so, oh. but by the way, John, when you talk about the, the, the Chinese and the, that still remains the hardest villain to portray. Oh, you can't. Cannot. You can't. Both the second for, largest media market um, for movies in, in America. Look. Right. But so it's both, but yeah. it's for mercenary and for PC yeah. reasons because the, it's it's racist uh, to, to portray uh, uh, China as evil. And and of course, you'll you'll sink your 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 business. Right. So why don't we move on to the real world Russians? And uh, Joe Biden's pretty sole solitary success as president, I think we can agree, which is um, uh, the uh, strengthening of and the spine stiffening of and the general new commitment across Europe and to the NATO alliance and its centrality in terms of being a bulwark against world chaos and disorder and, and the rise of the strong man. Um, that's actually what's happening this week while nobody was paying attention because Biden being having achieved the condition that presidencies achieve of nothing ever happening in a good way at a good time when, when the news is going bad for you, even the good stuff that happens gets swamped by bad news. Not that not that Trump is bad, not that the Trump January 6th stuff is bad news for Biden, but certainly, um, you know, other other aspects of what's what's going on in America this week are terrible news, including the stock market. But there he is in Europe. Clearly, we're about to see NATO grow by two countries now that the decks have been cleared by Erdogan of Turkey agreeing to Sweden and Finland going into NATO. So NATO will now be 31 countries or 30 countries. Um, renewed commitment to uh, winning, fighting, and kind of winning. I don't think the word winning is really used, but the implicit idea is that they, they are, they're not going anywhere where the Russians and Ukraine are concerned, and that means that there will be upward pressure internally and in the alliance on providing Ukraine with the means it needs to um, reverse the recent trend toward Russian battlefield successes. Though, Noah, you are more sanguine about this than a lot of people. The general proposition that you're hearing over the last week is that Russia has gained the upper hand, that things have turned in their direction. They they took over uh, the city in the in the Donbass, uh, Sverdonetsk, that was being so highly contested. 
they're leveling other places. They are going to get control of Luhansk and they're going to get control of of Ukraine's east and therefore uh, have you know moved from a bad strategy to a good strategy. But you're this is not something that you share the pessimism about. I just find it um, a view that it excludes certain uh, facts that would frustrate the narrative. So they pref- so the people advancing it prefer the narrative over the facts on the ground, which to me is an intellectually indefensible practice. Um, yes, Russian advances in, in the Donbass region, Luhansk, Donetsk, Severodonetsk fell. Lysychansk is likely going to fall. So it's like twin city. It's right on the other side of the river and that's likely going to fall next. Uh, so there have been advances and a game of inches in the Donbass. Um, likewise, there's Ukrainian advances in Zaporizhzhia. And they're on the outskirts of Kyrgyzstan, which is a major city, uh, pretty much on the Black Sea coast, not quite, um, but close. So the game of inches goes both ways and it's intellectually indefensible to defend, to to ignore one over the other. Um, uh, Russians withdrew from uh, Snake Island overnight, which is this teeny little military installation in the Black Sea, right off the coast of the farthest southwestern point uh, of Ukraine, pretty much on the border of um, Romania, um, which is the first place, one of the first places to have fallen. You know, the very, this very famous anecdote about uh, Ukrainian forces holding out there and being given an ultimatum by a Russian warship and, and saying, Russian warship, go F yourself. That became this meme. And that's where this happened. It was very early in the war and the Ukrainians have subsequently retaken it. The Russians call it a, a gesture of goodwill. It's a gesture of goodwill that follows a series of missile strikes uh, across the country, one of which gained a lot of uh, uh, notoriety in the West in particular because it was an attack on a shopping center, a civilian shopping center. Many civilians were killed in the process. And it had a so target with absolutely no military value and isn't really all that close to military targets or targets that are infrastructure. So it's hard to justify. Um, so like we say, my, my general impression here is that this is sort of a, a, a war of attrition and a stalemate broadly with some movement in one direction, some movement in another direction. Russians can consolidate their gains in Donbass, but that would be a strategic failure. The strategic goal that Moscow embarked upon in February was to crush the Ukrainian state, was to capture the city, was to bifurcate the country, was to ruin its national uh, ethos, its national idea, and certainly to cow the West. None of that's happened. All the opposite has happened. And And now the battle becomes, I'm sorry, just briefly, the the battle in public opinion becomes over whether the West's artificial limits on what Ukraine can do with the weapons we're giving it to them are justified and rational. Right now, the Ukrainians cannot use their multiple launch rocket systems to target counter battery offensives that are emanating from Russia. That is uh, tying their hands behind their back and to a degree that is increasingly resented and makes no tactical sense. So that's the next thing we're going to start to talk about in the next couple of weeks. But generally, my frustration with the West's coverage of this war is that it's roughly two weeks behind the facts on the ground pretty consistently. Uh, and that's what we're seeing today. Talk about how Russia's winning uh, all all, you know, interest, all, all events contrary to that, notwithstanding. Well, and it's very present. It's very week by week, almost day by day in the reporting, because if you look, if you dig a little deeper, you see there have been a series of these stories recently about the uh, challenges the Russian military has had in its annual recruitment drives. It cannot, the conscripts, they have a draft 
and parents are now hiding their sons from the draft. There's, I'm, you know, a ton of bribes that are that are being exchanged to prevent kids from being sent off to the front. And the fact that the Russian army, and we've talked about this since the beginning of this war, the Russian army is, is severely mistreated many of its soldiers and lied to their families back home about what they were, first of all, what the mission was to begin with and what, what the long-term consequences uh, of this war would be for them. So they actually might run out of soldiers. I mean, they, they've certainly had a, lost a lot of their um, higher ranking military men. There have been a series of stories about the number of generals who they've lost in battle. Um, so they're looking at a, at a human shortage too, in terms of prosecuting this war, even if they don't, fa- even if they overcome some of the challenges that, that Noah laid out. And there's clearly no appetite for conscription in the Kremlin. Look, the, the Russian narrative here was that, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine is flirting with NATO membership. That's unacceptable. We have to break that ambition. Uh, and now the Russian border with NATO has increased by what, 4,000 kilometers? Uh, you know, there's a lot of apprehension on the part of people who, who don't like really American foreign commitments generally. Like, oh, how, is, how, is the fin- how are the Finns going to police their border with Russia if there's, you know, an incursion like this of the sort that occurs with some regularity against Estonia? Ask the Finns. You know, 1940 would like a word. Um, there's, 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 we have a lot of indications that the Finns know how to not only police their borders, but to defend themselves. This is a, this again, this is a country that's pockmarked with uh, bunkers for the entire population. They've, they've been preparing for this moment for three generations. Abe, the, and the moment Abe, has arrived. What, what concerns me and depresses me is that it's not just media coverage that has been negative about this. About two weeks ago, you had Biden administration officials telling the New York Times that when the dust settles, Russia is going to have uh, end up with a larger piece of of land in eastern Ukraine than it had started out with. What is that? That's that's that. I fear that's a self fulfilling prophecy. So, I think what we have here is I think what 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 where where everybody is sort of. Um, coming to a consensus point is that uh, everything you could um, have expected from Western elite opinion has happened in a pretty uh, predictable sequence, though at any given moment along the line of the sequence, everything seemed to be permanent, which is to say there was this mad on rush of early enthusiasm or you know, stalwart moral support combined with real fear that the Ukrainians could not last outlast the initial Russian onslaught, then turning into kind of exhilarated excitement at the success of the Ukrainians in turning back the Russian advance on, on, on Kiev in particular. Then the idea that, well, you know, they could really win. They could win. They're going to, their Russians are going to uh, turn tail and retreat. Then, oh, the Russians aren't actually turning tail and retreating, but they're still doing badly. Ha ha ha. You see moral strength and the, you know, righteous, the righteous cause is working. And then what, what's increasingly happening is that it is turning into a conventional war of a sort that we actually haven't really seen or that the West has not really partaken in since World War II, like a slog border, you know, hand-to-hand fighting, streets, cities turned into rubble, that stuff 
And uh, at which point Western public opinion, not Western opinion, elite opinion, freaked out. Freaked out. It's like, well, I mean, they're reducing cities to rubble. And the implicit predicate or the thing that, you know, is that uh, they better figure out some way to make a deal, which has always been this sotto voce second line, you know, second corridor alongside the, well, we have to support the Ukrainians. Obviously, their cause is just, they can't allow their country to be taken over. But it's like, what is this going to look like? Where's the Russian off-ramp? How do we make sure that Russia isn't humiliated? And all of that. And um, I'm not saying that that's not a serious thing to consider or to talk about or to pay attention to. But um, we, we have more like a psychodrama of, of the West, which is like, we were all in for two months. Now it's going to take a lot more than two months. And now we're getting kind of, oh, no, you know, this is so terrible. And, you know, that's not what war is. Like, you know, wars, conventional wars of this sort can go on for, for years. It's terrible for Ukraine. That's why war is so awful. I mean... Ukraine will almost certainly, I think, in the end, in some fashion or other, end up prevailing in this struggle, simply by dint of the fact that what the Russians did was way more audacious than people realized. You can't just go into a neighboring country and take it over and crush the state and end its government and conclude its resistance and eat it, swallow it up alive. Well, not with a quarter million troops. Right. Or, you know, I mean, you know, sort of happened to France in 1940, but it doesn't really happen that easily. And um, particularly not with the kind of outside Western support that we're providing to Ukraine. Ukraine will doubtless in some fashion prevail in the struggle and it is going to be a nightmarish success, but it's not, it's their moral obligation, their moral responsibility to make sure that they're not swallowed up and they don't want to be. And, Western public opinion is going to start getting impatient with them for being so stalwart. That's my, not again, not Western public. This is all a conversation that's happening on the elite level, people in the international relations field and, you know, public diplomats and things like that. No, it's bubbling up on the right as well. It's not just in, uh, you know. But, but, uh, but the right <laughs> had it. The right had it from the beginning. I mean, there's a whole seeing, species we're seeing of more opinion of it. on the right. It's having much more um, purchase now, the idea that we're just throwing throwing money away, sacrificing American sovereignty. This is a Ukraine is a slush fund. Really? I think it's American the same elites. people thought that the first week as think it now. I'm just hearing. I mean, that from, stuff was people who perhaps were cowed. show from the first week onward. So maybe they maybe they believed it at the time, but were reluctant to say it then. But they're saying it now. But who, who are you talking about? Because I don't hear a single like, I mean, I don't hear. A single I don't want to name politician names. Outside These people of... are my friends. OK, but, but they like are Rand prominent Paul. people on the right who have held positions of political authority uh, and are representative of a of a of an idea that is that has purchase on the right in the in the in the talk radio circuit, you know, in the in the online readership circuit, the people who consume politics for entertainment. I mean, this sort of thing is, is gaining purchase. Shouldn't ignore it. I, I think what's happening. I mean, I, I've noticed this, too, Noah, is that the longer the, the cause of Ukraine um, is is championed um, sort of by the establishment. Um, the more the more the certain people and and certain elements uh, on the right want to call it out as virtue signaling. 
Right. So, so, so it's 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 separate from the what's actually happening over there. Right. It it's, might just be negative partisanship, but it yeah, is well, that's right. Virtu- yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that, and I think that's a very brilliant point. I don't think that that uh, stalwart support in the kind of establishmentarian world is going to survive much longer. I think that's what we're seeing the the beginnings of is the. I mean, those poor Ukrainians, they really have to sue for peace. And then when they don't sue for peace, it's going to be the Ukrainians are there's something like, why are they letting this happen to them when they could be in engaging in peace negotiations? You know, granted, look, they have all the right on their side, but, you know, this can't go on. You know, where how are mother how are people getting milk and bread, and, you know, that kind of thing. And then then you'll get this kind of withdrawal and if if my psychological portrait of this is true, seven or eight months from now, people are going to get pretty angry at Zelensky and the Ukrainians for being so, uh, you know, unreasonable about trying to find a way out because they they will have had enough. And they will want the Ukrainians to have had enough. Or I mean that you mean the elite and many of the elite yeah. opinion makers, because I, I mean, I think the other thing we're not discussing is the fact that we've always known that Americans have short attention spans for foreign interventions of any sort or for anything going on outside of our own uh, borders. And in, in this case, both the Democrats and the Republicans have an incentive to talk to keep everything focused on domestic matters right now. I mean, think about there, there's horrific stuff continuing to go on in Afghanistan, including to people who we claimed we would protect because they had served us and our country for 20 years and we completely abandoned them, the women and girls in particular. Nobody wants to hear about that. Nobody's talking about that. I think a similar thing is happening and and it's encouraged by our political elites right now with election season coming up, but also because, you know, the Republicans want to talk and rightly so about inflation and a lot of the domestic uh, uh, things that are going on that people are actually feeling, experiencing every day. And the Democrats want to talk about gun control, abortion and MAGA Republicans in January 6th. So there's also a political incentive to just ignore these um, uh, overseas events. And Americans are already uh, not totally engaged in, in international affairs as a rule. If that's the case, then we have to go back to the question of what, what, where is the political seichel, as as uh, as the Yiddish word would have it, inside the Biden White House and with the Biden team? This is his success. Maybe people don't care about it very much. Maybe it's in a field in which people are far more engaged in their domestic interests and aren't going to like you know aren't going to tweak to his um you know how how well he's done here but you go with what you have and um <clears throat> this expansion of nato uh the, the the strengthening of the western alliance and indeed the mood and and sea change in both mood and policy in europe where the europeans are talking much more aggressively about taking a, a role in their own defense and not simply relying on us to be their uh, defender so that they can use their own money to spend on their own social welfare state. That's something for him to go and give six or seven speeches about. No, no, no. But he, okay. he squandered that. Sorry to interrupt you, but he squandered that opportunity when he started hammering on Putin's gas 
price tax had uh, tax hike and you know uh, blaming Putin for all of the domestic mess he's made of a lot of economic decisions. I think a lot of Americans who otherwise would have been open to hearing that message and hearing a little uh, justifiable uh, boasting by his administration about the way they've handled Ukraine. That's it. Like he used it as a cynical political tool at a moment when uh, Americans were demanding some answers from an administration that has none about the economy. I really think that matters to people. Well, and there's obviously, I mean, the interesting answer in terms of doing something about the Putin price hike um, is, of course, adopting policies that he's refusing to adopt. And obviously, the you know wild increase in 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 energy costs and energy prices is bolstering Putin's Ukraine strategy because Russia is benefiting from the run-up. What's the best way to deal with that, at least in market terms? would be to free up American oil exploration. I know it's not doesn't have an immediate effect in terms of bring stuff off the ground and refining it and doing all that, but it would it would say America is changing policy to make itself more friendly to energy exploration and exploitation precisely so that Putin doesn't get the upper hand and that would have a very serious downward effect on prices and would deny Putin this windfall that he's getting from the run-up in energy prices that, you know, is helping him turn his attention away from Ukraine as an emergency, which is one of the things we're hearing about, that he is no longer acting as though, you know, he is bunkered in the Kremlin or wherever he is, like, moving little pieces on a map, you know, that he can now be, you know, he can now govern in whatever that means in in his terms. Anyway, uh, Clearly, Biden is not going to relent on this subject. He does not have enough of a control of his Democratic base. And uh, and and the betrayal of the rhetoric that has been so central to his efforts over the last three years in terms of climate change, um, he just, he can't go there. And so there is this, but he could talk about the West. He could talk about the West. He could talk about strengthening the West. It would also It would also make for a very, interesting and positive <clears throat> counterweight to Trump and Trump's presidency when Trump is in complicated odor to say Trump attacked the West. Trump said the West was done. Trump said the West was finished. Trump, you know, had contempt for Europe. He treated everybody like crap. I've gone there. Look what's happened now. NATO's bigger. NATO's stronger. The West is more resolved. The West is wants to face down bad guys and that's that's how we've cha- I said I would change this, and I have changed it. And uh, that is something that every patriotic American should like. I mean, I, I don't think that's something he can't say. But I, I'll just I'll try to be a little sympathetic to Biden here. Um, in a populist atmosphere, it can be very tricky to say, look at the good we're doing abroad while while we're getting hammered here uh, economically. I mean, that 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 opens him up for the kind of attacks that he's getting anyway. Yeah, well, but you just don't know. You just don't know where these conversations can go. If you don't open them, if you don't if you don't start them, if you say, nah, everyone's going to say this about it or that about it, then you don't know whether starting the conversation can change the terms of the conversation. And. Uh, obviously, they think domestically they can do it. That's what the whole idea of centering the election on 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 Roe and guns is. 
Um, but we should get to that. But first, <laughs> we should make sure that as the summer comes and you know things get hot, uh, you're, you're sleeping comfortably in your downy soft bed. And where are you going to get that from? Bull and Branch with those best 100% organic cotton threads, the best on earth, superior softness and better night's sleep. Their sheets aren't just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft to start. They get softer with every wash. Forget thread count. Bowl and Branch gives you thread quality. It doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they aren't the best threads possible. You'll immediately feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets, which come in nine neutral colors in all sizes from Twin Up to California King, 100% free from toxins, no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. Ball and Branch sheets fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. Best of all, Ball and Branch, with 10,000 stellar reviews online, gives you 30-night frisk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. So get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code COMMENTARY at BollandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code COMMENTARY. Uh, okay, uh, abortion and guns and MAGA, right? These are, as Christine was saying to us before we started, this is the Democratic pitch for November. They want to talk about how Republicans have gone super MAGA, how, uh, you know, we need to do something to reverse this um, medieval trend on abortion. And we've got to get, we've got to fix guns because of the evil decision that allows you to, you know, in, at least in seven states, carry guns wherever you want to. Um, is this, so Christine, you were saying, really, like, again, this is back to Abe's reality bites thing. Like, there's real stuff going on that is making people's lives difficult on a day-to-day basis, hundreds of millions of people's lives difficult not to be too gross about this and it is gross but i'm going to say it anyway so there are about a million abortions a year in the united states that means a million women are availing themselves in the course of a year of of an abortion and maybe their families are involved or not involved that's a million out of 330 million that's like there are i don't know 100 and 180 million females in the united states so that's one 180th of people who actually need an abortion, not just have the abortion possibility in their pocket in case something goes wrong, but who either need an abortion or want an abortion or actually have an abortion. That is, maybe you can extrapolate that from a million to 40 million people and get them all riled up about it. That's what polling tells you, but I don't know. When... Christine, what was the what's the number on the Fourth of July barbecue stuff again? Uh, yeah, so the, so we were we were talking before we started recording about like the message the message of the Democrats and they do this a lot is Republicans are too extreme. The Republican Party is so far to the right of the average American. They're too extreme. They're dangerous. They're now ultra MAGA. They care. They only care about you know stealing women's rights and tot- toting guns and you know it's all terrible. And January sixth, so. Uh, 
last year, if you all remember, right, when we mocked this, I think appropriately on the podcast, the Biden administration released this number as inflation was rising for American families, um, but we were being told it was transitory. The Biden administration had this horrible graphic of, of, a, of a July 4th picnic saying, your, your July 4th barbecue this year will be 16 cents cheaper than it was last year. And we, we I mean, it's ridiculous. People are like, what are you talking about? And to say nothing of gas prices to get to the barbecue. This year, uh, RNC is is pushing this number out too because there have been a couple of reports about this. Your Fourth of July barbecue is going to cost ten dollars more than it did last year. Um, so that's that's the I, I'm just shocked by the contrast in messaging, right? So you have a Democratic Party who's who's on got a very strong ideological push to claim that anyone on the right is too extreme for the country. Meanwhile, you have a lot of people in the middle in this country who hear that message, might even agree with parts of it, um, but are also looking at $10 more for their barbecue and just this constant rising cost. And they remember last year being told that this was transitory. Oh, calm down. This is just people trying to scare you. But now they've experienced this for almost a year, rising costs. Everything's more expensive. They've had to make sacrifices for sending their kids to camp, for going on vacations, for what they do in their daily lives. Everything costs more. And they have been experiencing that for a while. So it shocks me. Well, it doesn't shock me because politically, as you have said, John, the Democrats really don't have a response to that right now. But people are still looking to this administration to give them an answer. And instead, they're being told, well, don't worry about that daily uh, hassle in your life and that daily anxiety you feel worry more about ultra MAGA. I, I just, I don't think that's going to, we'll see, maybe that'll work uh, a few months from now, but that strikes me as kind of a tenured message right now. I mean, we're, we're, uh, tomorrow is July 1st. So July to August, August, so four months till the midterm elections. Um, so on the one hand, the classic rule was after Labor Day is when everybody pays attention. On the other hand, <clears throat> there is evidence that people, particularly in states that are really contesting are, 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 are in play in 2022, are paying attention. I just want to cite one interesting piece of uh, a fact for you that has now been consistent across polls for the last month to six weeks about whether or not voters can make distinctions, whether or not Republican voters can make distinctions, and independent voters can make distinctions, and why talking down to them like the MAGA tax like the ultra MAGA stuff and the Putin tax and all that is self-defeating. Georgia, there are two races in Georgia. There's a Senate race and there's a governor's race. The governor's race, of course, was the one in which Trump attempted to intervene to get the sitting governor, Brian Kemp, ousted uh, by the former Senator David Perdue uh, on the grounds that Kemp had you know, refused to work his will and be his, you know, be his toady uh, in relation to the supposedly disputed election results of 2020. And Kemp blew Purdue away and is now the nominee against Stacey Abrams, the person he beat by 50,000 votes in 2018. And is one of the most famous politicians in America now. That's one race. The other race is between the senator who defeated David Purdue, Raphael Warnock, uh, uh, the pastor who was who had a Martin Luther King's pulpit in Atlanta and uh, won the race when Trump caused so many depressed Republicans to stay home because no one was being his slave in 2020 on, on the election. Um, Warnock is beatable. 
since he was almost beaten. <laughs> he only won by, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 votes, something like that. And yet, and that he's up against Herschel Walker, famous football player, star football player in, in, in Georgia, uh, most legendary football player in the history of the state of Georgia. And Herschel Walker is a crazy person. And I say that kind of clinically, he's clinically a crazy person. He claims to have multi, he claims to have multiple personality disorder. Uh, you know, he goes around talking about how people need to be better fathers and, you know, and, and sexually restrained and all of that. And then it turns out that he has illegitimate children that he barely acknowledges the existence of. And he's nuts. Okay, why do I bring this up? Because if you look at all the polling, and there's just a poll out this week, but it's it's been consistent now over the last month. Purdue, excuse me, Purdue Kemp is running five to ten points ahead of Walker. Kemp's got a, like a I don't know six or seven or eight point margin. Or actually, it's like a four or five point margin over Abrams. Um, but Walker is now 11 points behind Warnock. And uh, so we there have a real-world indication of a serious politician in Brian Kemp who has credentials in two different directions. Like he was governor, very conservative, all of that, can unite the Republicans you know, on his record, and <clears throat> can be of appeal to independents who were disgusted by Trump because he hold, held the line and stood up to Trump. And then you have Walker, who was Trump's candidate, who was nobody, no smart establishmentarian's idea of who should be the candidate to run against Warnock, um, but prevailed anyway. And McConnell and others in the Senate, you know, who work on this stuff, kind of relented and backed Walker because they didn't, they didn't want to have a big fight with Trump over this or with the Trumpian forces. And he's probably going to lose. Now, he may not lose because sometimes, but the point is that this polling, it's very easy. It's not easy to dismiss the polling in the Walker case because the polls are simultaneous. The same polls are simultaneously showing uh, Kemp with a, with a lead outside the margin of error and are showing him with uh, way behind, way outside the margin of error. So we had polls with Republican candidates for Senate um, or Democrats surging or stuff like that in the South in 2020 and, and, and other times where the polls were just terrible, right? Like North Carolina and a couple, it was South Carolina or North Carolina? I can't remember. With the, where it was 13. Oh, no, no, it was the race against Lindsey Graham. And there was uh, Jamie Harrison was like three points behind, but he lost by 13. But those were individuated polls. This is showing this huge gap. And so I think people are paying attention. I look at that and say that means people are paying attention. They're not just they're not just thinking generically now. And if that's the case, then um, what everybody says right now does matter. You can't say like, oh, well, they're only going to start paying attention. You know, people who say you only start paying attention after the World Series. The World Series is now like you know happens in January practically, so that's no longer. That's no longer fitting. Anybody have any thoughts on Democrats needing to hone their messaging pretty fast? I mean, what messaging? 
First of all, I, from what we've seen from the reaction to this Quinnipiac University survey from Georgia folks is they don't really think that this gap is anywhere remotely close to that. There is a gap, probably a measurable one, but that's just <clears throat> hard to believe. So we'll take it, take it at face value with a grain of salt. But we were talking before we got on that, uh, and Christine, you should feel this one because you're on top of it, that their messaging is um, has pretty much been handed to them on a plate by the Supreme Court, and they think that's really all they have to go with. Uh, and so that suggests they didn't have any messaging at all. I mean, if you just got your political messaging in the last two weeks from this Supreme series of Supreme Court decisions, you didn't have a political messaging strategy, and you still don't have a messaging strategy. Right. And I think I think it's telling that um, this time around, it's it's not uncommon for, for Democrats to seize on this. They're basically treating the Supreme Court as if it was a, a, a elective body and the electors have gone rogue and done these things that the average American would never agree to totally and deliberately misinterpreting the, the role of that branch of government. Worse this time around is how many elected Democrats and the Democratic Party in general is promoting a message of illegitimacy about the court. That's upsetting to me for a number of reasons. But it's also, I think, it's going to undermine what they're trying to do. So I think they think what they're saying is extreme MAGA has captured these other institutions. We're the last bulwark against this insane fascism that's rolling over the country and Trump will come back and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, I mean, I was also fascinated. There was a recent Axios Ipsos poll of of uh, Latino voters in this country. And between just over the last six months or so, the main concern for a lot of them is crime and inflation. And so the interesting thing is like, you could talk about guns if you're a Democrat and you're smart to certain communities of likely Democratic voters in terms of crime and say, you know, crime is a problem, this, that, and the other. That's not how they're talking about it. They're talking about let's eliminate guns. The Second Amendment is crazy. You know, I mean, they, they aren't able to thread that needle for a lot of voters because there are plenty of voters with a D after the name who are gun owners. And they don't ever speak to those people. And they're certainly not speaking to Latino voters who, by the way, are going to soon be the major minority in this country, um, along with Asian voters. They, they, they are trapped in these weird narratives about race and about, um, about crime that don't allow them to find a wedge issue for their likely voters in the midterms. And they're going to they'll reap what they sow there. I mean, but also, isn't the January 6th committee hearings in part a messaging project? I mean, yes, they were they were absolutely. they were Democrats were were blunt about that. Uh, on the eve of the, of the first day of it, um, front page stories saying they, they hope to use this to steer to steer voters away from re Republicans. Yeah, but that was attributed to nobody. I mean, anybody on the record says nobody cares about January 6th, including Democrats. They know it's not a voting issue. In fact, I've seen I, plenty I, of quotes on the record <laughs> from Democratic <laughs> officials who say that they're, we're, they're most likely taking on water as a result of dropping Wait, so the focus the on the issues that actually move the electorate. The worst thing possible for the Democrats would be if if uh, they indict Trump before the midterms, because then there goes their villain. Right. I mean, they could still use him, obviously. But uh, the idea that that Trump could be hobbled and not run again is actually not helpful for Democrats, even if it might be very good for the Republic. Well, I, I'm <clears throat> I'm struck by the fact that. Uh, there was this talk about the January 6th hearings being helpful to Democrats in advance of the midterms, and it it was so stupid that I can't actually believe that serious people in politics believe that to be the case. That was January media wish 6th, casting. Yeah. But it's a bank shot. It's a total bank shot. The January 6th hearings are about Trump. 
and the people who work for Trump. And voting in 2022 is going to be about, is going to be of people who may or may not have said they believed the election was or was not legitimate, which is a you know hot button issue for every Democrat in the country, but will not be a hot button issue for voters because it's almost like a dorm room debating issue. And the purpose of the January 6th hearing and the commit and the committee is to garner the facts about January 6th to come up with ideas for legislation to make sure that this process is less messy and less uh, less uh, uh, potentially less affected by a uh, politicking around the uh, around things after the election and then also to see if they can produce enough material that can lead the Justice Department to indict Trump personally in an effort to keep him from running in 2024, but not about the midterms. I mean, again, if anybody really thought that this was going to affect the midterms, that's bonkers. Like that really is bonkers. And it goes to a kind of bubble effect that is uh, very pernicious. Let's finish up on, on one thing. It's increasingly clear, I think, two days after the hearing that there was a major bungle here in the committee deciding to start with or really highlight at the very beginning of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony this story about what went on inside inside uh, Trump's SUV. Um, and I'm trying to figure out, I think it's Liz Cheney is the person who's going to be to blame for this, that the decision to mix her personal testimony of something that she actually witnessed, which was Trump having the fit of temper hearing about uh, Bill Barr's December 1st, 2020 interview in which he said there's no evidence of election fraud and throwing a plate against the wall, the ketchup running down the wall, then she running over Cassie Hutchison to clean it up. That's her. That's her personal story that she was part of and uh, is personal testimony. The entire story about the SUV is is was something that was told to her and the committee decided to ask her about it and did not do due diligence on whether or not the account that she was given actually, you know, was supportable by any other by any facts or by anybody else. And there was clearly pushback from inside the limo. And this is giving the people who want to act like what she said was all not to be trusted. And uh, that's a that's a an unforced error. It is a huge unforced error on the committee's part, for sure, because it's created this scuttlebutt. Um, but that is what it is. It is, he, should, he said, she said, the committee now has absolutely no choice but to take public testimony from Tony Ornato, who says he wants to testify under oath. Tony Ornato is the deputy person. assistant to the president who was also a Secret Service agent. Who related, it was there, who related this story to Cassidy Hutchison, according to her sworn testimony. So he has to give his account of events now and the, and the committee will have to take it and they may have egg on their face in that process. If they don't, if they don't hear his testimony in public under oath, then the committee will have you know, shot itself in the foot. I don't think they'd ever recover. If, however, we get testimony from Tony Renato, he's going to have to say under oath under penalty of perjury exactly what happened. And we don't know what he's going to say on the stand, and it would be foolish to prejudge it. There are a lot of people who are who are 
showing the hand that they're trying to play here by contending that sort of vague on the record statements to reporters are the rough equivalent of sworn testimony. It's not. And to right. pretend otherwise is to demonstrate that you either don't want to know the distinctions or don't quite grasp the distinctions, which doesn't render you an honest broker. We, I mean, we do have this other, uh, other worrisome factoid on the other end of the, of these stories, which is Cassie Hutchison saying that she wrote this note on chief of staff's paper that Eric Hirschman, the Trump, the lawyer in the White House, says he wrote. And Hirschman is, you know, at this point, no, no friend of Trump's or no friend and certainly no friend of the January 6th conspiracy and has no reason to impeach her if what he's saying is not true. So I think this is a pretty, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, this it's is so a more weird. Why is, why is chief of staff, why is the chief of staff's letterhead just floating around? It was a piece of paper way. that he grabbed off a desk. Right. It has chief of staff on it's, on it. It's the letterhead. Well, so, so Hirschman didn't, he was in, so he was in, he was at her desk or he was in, in Meadows office. I don't, I mean, you'd have, I don't know what the geography was. He grabbed a piece of paper and wrote something on it, said, or said, does anybody have a piece of paper? And someone handed him that piece of paper. However you slice it, Hirschman has absolutely no incentive to say that he, you know, wrote this, put this on the piece of paper Cassie Hutchison clearly said something weird here, did something weird by saying that it was her handwriting. Um, and I don't know. I mean, so we have we have two pieces of circumstantial evidence that she uh, either was muddled or uh, misrepresented facts as she, you know, one that she said she was directly involved in and one that she overheard. And that's not nothing. And again, you're right, though, that if 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 this causes Cipollone, Meadows, and Ornato to testify, where that goes, nobody knows. And that's well, Cipollone the ultimate... has now been subpoenaed. He has to appear. He'll be in contempt. Right. Well, Meadows is already in contempt. So yeah, Cipollone, though, I guess, can be disbarred. Yeah. Uh, if he's in contempt of Congress, I mean, he actually does have an actual legal practice and. So anyway, we're in an interesting and Cipollone was negotiating with the committee for many months, um, whatever that meant. Uh, and and uh, so uh, we're, we're nowhere near near the end of this story. But we are at the end of this podcast. How's that for a transition? You like that? OK, uh, we'll be back tomorrow and then. Uh, we're going to have lots of personnel switches and change-ups over the next two weeks because, of course, what's coming? What's coming on Tuesday, Noah? Me and my book. Noah's book, The Rise of the New Puritans, coming out Tuesday, July 5th. Go pre-order so you Tuesday, can get July it. July 5th, there'll be a lot if of interviews around If you read the Kindle, it. it'll be right there. They'll deliver it automatically into your Kindle at 12 midnight plus one second on Jan on I was gonna say January 5th on January, July 5th. July 5th. You can get the hard copy, which is the best way to read a book. I don't know how people read it on digital devices. Very handsome, you extremely can. handsome book. They did a really lovely job at your publishing house. Or you can Kudos hear me to talk Eric to Nelson you for 10 consecutive hours because I narrated too. 
So if that's something you're interested in, your podcast super fans are going straight for the audiobook. I'm just saying they're going to okay, be. I <laughs> hope so. There you go. I cannot listen to audiobooks. I can't. I just I drift off and then like two pages pass and then I come back and I'm like, what? What happened? Who who killed that guy? What do you mean there's blood? What do you mean there's blood on the knife? What knife? Because I'm like, oh, I wonder, did I did I, you know, what about that article that was supposed to come in today? And then I, I but you know, there are people I know who like do nothing but listen to audiobooks. It's you absorb more when you read. I mean, I think that's the uh the science on the <laughs> hey what happened to that thing years ago you were you were using there was some program where it would flash word by word like if you're reading something i still use it so it it it, it like shows you things word by word by word by word by word by word yeah yeah supposedly helping with your reading comprehension does that actually work it helps with my speed because I'm ah. a slow reader, slow reader, slow called? writer, slow talker, slow thinker. What is it called? I think it's called Spreed, Spreeder. Oh, anyway, yeah, it's 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 fun to watch. Like I, I couldn't do that either, but um, but but there you go. Anyway, Christine, are you are you're you're a Codex person? Like you hate you hate the computer. Well, I'd read so on scrolls must... and parchment if I could. Yeah, no, I'm I'm I've never used it. I couldn't use the uh-huh. e-readers. I mean, I I've use them to try to understand and i have a lot of friends who love them and if you travel a lot they're brilliant because you can put so many books on them but um when they when they started removing when they removed 1984 from people's <laughs> devices do you remember that a few years yeah. ago i was like that's why i don't like them um no i i prefer paper i prefer reading books so i i yeah, gotta say school. i am now reading most long you know most most literature i am now reading on not only on a not on a kindle but on my phone Oh wow! Yeah, well, that I can't. It's in do. my pocket. I can have it anywhere. You know, if you know, if if I'm with my wife and she wants to go into a store and I'm in the car and we're in a, like, I can sit in the car and read. Like, I don't have to carry the book with me. Um, like there are a couple of books I have to actually read. I I, I read I read Noah's book in hardcover. I have to read Walter Russell Mead's coming book in in its hardcover edition in book. And I'm a little apprehensive. It's been like I just generally don't hold books the same way i used to i mean i'm inseparable from my kindle that is true uh but i the optimal sensory experience of reading is i still maintain with a book see i love my eyes are bad now yeah but that's my thing like the 19th century literature that i read that i always read in penguin classics or some you know the oxford classics or something like that and then i pull one off the shelf because i'm like okay i haven't read Phineas Redux in 20 years, I should read Phineas Redux. And then I pull it off and I open it. And it's like the type is too small. I mean, there's that too. Like I didn't used to really care about the size of type. And now I'm like, the type is too small. 61, man. When I'm alone and no what one's looking over my shoulder. Old. What? When I'm alone and no one's looking over my shoulder and I'm, I'm reading my Kindle, you should see the size of that type. <laughs> <laughs> then when I'm on the subway, I you know I make some adjustments. Yeah, <laughs> in case anyone sees. Uh, I didn't know that reading was a public act of that sort. Anyway, you can if you buy Noah's book, The Rise of the New Puritans, on your Kindle, you can make the type as big or as small as you want. But it is an extremely handsome physical book. Like I said, they did a beautiful job producing it, and kudos to Eric Nelson 
for his stewardship of your book. And we will be back tomorrow. So for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.